0: Everyone, I'm Bill Raggio. I'm a senior fellow at Foundation for Defense of Democracies and editor of FDD's Long War Journal. And this is Generation Jihad, the podcast that discusses the developments in what used to be known as the Global War on Terror and what we call the Long War. Uh, Today, we're going to take another detour. We're going to look at the war in Ukraine. Again, we have with us John Hardy. He's the deputy director of FDD's Russia program and he's been contributing to the Long War Journal on developments in Russia and Ukraine. He's a wealth of knowledge on this subject. John, welcome again to Generation Jihad, and thanks again for joining me.
1: Thanks, Bill. Great to be back.
0: Yeah, great to have you. So, John, there's been a lot of developments since you were last on the program just a little bit over two weeks ago. We've had... um mobilization of Russian forces after uh, a major Russian failures in, in Kharkiv Oblast. Um, Russia announced the annexation of, of, four territories within Ukraine. And we have an ongoing offensive in the Kherson area in southern, uh, Ukraine that seems to be shaping up pretty well for the Ukrainians. Um, let's, let's start with the, the, Two key issues here. I think, um, the mobilization of the Russian forces and then the exation of Ukrainian territory by Russia. John, tell us what led to this. This is a, because in the, because. Putin has, and the, the Russian military has been very, very hesitant about mobilizing, mobilizing its forces. It's called this a special military operation and not a war. And I think that's led to think the Russians to think that they could handle this with the, with existing forces. No need for a call up. What, what caused this about face, um, from the Russian position at the beginning of the war that began seven months ago?
1: Yeah, I think you're exactly right. You know, Putin did put off this decision for a long long time. I think probably despite uh, requests from his military advisors, um probably fearing, you know, domestic political risks as mobilization is very very unpopular among the Russian people. But I think if we you know, rewind the clock a few weeks to the Kharkiv counteroffensive, uh to my mind that's what really woke Putin up to the realization that Russia's military it's just not going to wear down Ukraine as he might have hoped. And uh, if he didn't do something drastic like mobilization, um, Russia could face you know collapse across broad swaths of the front, as happened in Kharkiv, basically because Russia um, has a severe manpower shortage. Uh, this has been the central dynamic of the war since the second phase started in April. Um, you know, Russia can't rotate forces. Uh, it's taken heavy casualties. It's sort of piecemeal Band-Aid. Um, attempts at solutions have, you know, helped Russia sustain the war, but they haven't really fixed the issue, and and those pools of manpower are really drying up. So I think Putin realized he really had no option. Uh, you know, his options were either defeat, um, some sort of massive escalation, maybe nuclear weapons. For obvious reasons, that's not really palatable, and then you know mobilization. So he went he went with the latter.
0: And. Tell us about the uh the mobilization. What are we looking at force-wise? I know that the, there's been a lot of uh, uh different uh takes on how much forces is mobilizing, who they're actually mobilizing. Tell us a little bit about what this call up is and what this might mean for the Russian military.
1: Sure. So, you know, what what showed you the defense minister initially said it was 300,000 uh, troops. He and Putin have said It'd be just reservists with prior military experience, ideally combat experience. Um, you know, no students, uh, no people who are you know physically unable to, to fight. Um, actually, no currently serving conscripts. Um, uh, conscripts make up about eh, a third, thirty-five percent or so of the of the Russian military. A little bit higher percentage in the ground forces. Um, but you know, they've actually said no. Those those folks will not serve. You know, we'll see if that is actually true. Um, I think, you know, Russia probably will mobilize um, conscripts who have uh, demobilized, meaning they've, you know, ended their, their service. But anyway, so Shorigu said, you know, 300, uh, 300K. Um, there was various reports and in independent Russian media outlets saying, you know, a million, 1.2 million. I, I don't think we really know at this point, you know, regardless of what the number is, you know, this will go gradually. It'll be phased, iterative. Um, you know, Russia is not the Soviet military. It's not a mass mobilization model, um, so the pipeline to you know take in re- reserve uh, 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 mobilized forces, you know, train them, equip them, et cetera, um, and then deploy them successfully is you know it, it's kind of narrow. So you know, Russia kind of has to go slowly.
0: Yeah, this and and when you say go slowly, what are you thinking? Is this a, something that's going to take weeks to get them on the battlefield, months, uh, six months, a year? What, what what do you think that that's going to look like?
1: So in, in general, there's been a lot of variance in the way Russia is approaching and then executing the mobilization. So I think uh, obviously, you know, the Russian forces in, currently in Ukraine are, you know, a bit desperate for manpower. So in some cases, uh, we see mobilized troops being thrown straight in, um, especially in the very, very vulnerable spots in, you know, Kharkiv, Oblast, um, Kherson. Um, but then there's other mobilized troops who are, you know, a couple of weeks of so refresher training, it looks like, you know, somewhere thereabouts, it's not exactly exact. And then I think there are some troops, mobilized uh, troops who are getting, you know, maybe even a month of training. And in that case, I think they're probably um, forming new regiments. Um, whereas in, in, the, in the other cases, they're probably just kind of filling existing un- uh, Russian units in Ukraine.
0: So it's a mix. It's a mix of, exactly. of uh, rounding out some existing forces as needed and and creating new units now what about weapons and uh, available for manning new units uh tell us a little bit about that does the russian have the capacity for the russians have the capacity for this is this uh do you think this is a problem going forward for the russians or do you think they have the, uh, the capacity to make that happen
1: sure so i think here again there's some variance it's hard to say exactly what the total capacity is because you know the Russians came into the war with quite a lot of equipment in storage. It's not clear exactly you know how much of that is is serviceable. You know we're talking about you know older tanks and whatnot in in, in long term storage. You know some of them might be you know able to uh, be operable with some minor repairs or something. Others might have been cannibalized for spare parts. Yada yada. It's it's unclear exactly how many of the thousands of tanks Russia came in you know in, in storage um, are actually uh, serviceable. So. You know, we've definitely seen some mobilized troops get like, you know, rusty AKs, for example. Um, other forces seem to be getting fairly good kit, like you know T90s, BMP3s, what have you. Um, so again, there, there's just a lot of variants. Um, I, th- I think one potential shortage for Russia, and we already see this playing out, is in, in some of the little stuff, like you know, body armor, um, cold weather gear, you know, stuff that you know may- maybe sound uh, it's not as sexy as a tank or something, but uh, you know, to, to a, to a mobilized um, uh, conscript sitting in the cold in Ukraine, you know, that, that uh, heavy coat is going to mean a, a heck of a lot. So um, in those cases, I think Russia has really relied, tried to rely on uh, regional governments to fund, um, uh, you know, to to procure these types of things along with volunteers.
0: So, and it, has that been effective? Do you think the, or is this too soon to tell with the, the regional authorities being asked to uh, equip these forces.
1: Yeah. This, right now it's, it's just hard to get a sense of how, exactly how widespread it is. Like, it, you know, is this something that's happening only in a minority of units? Is this, you know, a dramatic shortage across and ma- the majority of mobilized forces, you know, that the absence of you know, cold weather again, whatnot, it, it's really hard to say. Um, but I, I think in general, we will see um, at least some portion of the mobilized forces, you know, lacking for for the necessary gear uh, or, you know, making do with very old or insufficient gear, which, you know, will probably further degrade uh, morale, which is probably already going to be a problem among, you know, mobilized troops. In, in general, you'd expect morale to be an issue. And I think we're already seeing some of that just based on open source.
0: Yeah, the, the morale definitely is, is an issue be, because, you know, look, losing has an effect on, on morale and they're, you know, the loss in Kiev, followed by the loss in Kharkiv, you know, some modest gains, to put it uh, mild, you know, I, I think is the best description in in uh, Luhansk, which are, are under threat now. We'll get further into that a little bit later. Yeah, I didn't mean to put you on the on the spot on that question because it's so soon.
1: It's a great question, and it's something I think we all have to track very closely.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's it's too soon, but it's too, sometimes you can get a get a feeling of it, you know, and I think it's definitely is something worth looking for uh, looking at over time. The um what do you think the, the biggest problem with the the Russians have with this mobilization? Obviously, it's Russia's a large country. Um it has a lot of people. It has what I believe it's like somewhere between 8 to 10 times more people to 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 a population to recruit from than Ukraine, but you know it's not just about bodies. What, what's Russia's biggest challenge here um, when it comes to these bodies?
1: Well, I think uh, you know having the officers, especially junior officers, uh, to to train and lead them is going to be a big issue. Uh, this this um, class of personnel has taken a lot of casualties in in Ukraine, so you know we've already seen some examples where you know uh, uh, these newly formed uh, uh, mobilized conscript units uh, either don't have uh, professional officers or you know m- maybe they have one is the overall regiment commander or something but the rest are all mobilized um, you know what have you this is going to be a, a, a big issue you know it seems like the Russians are trying to train at least some of these mobilized personnel in their uh, military academies and training centers you know in in some cases I've seen anecdotal video evidence that, that cadets are actually training them. So, you know, it, it just speaks to the to the shortage of, uh, of mobilized personnel. In general, I suspect this is probably another area where there's some variance. Um, although, you know, on the whole, I, I do see this as being a big issue for Russia.
0: And, John, you mentioned uh, – I'm going to just – Turn it back, just a, 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 a statement or two. You mentioned the minority units in the Russian military. Can you explain that a little more for those not familiar with how the Russian military is organized? Russia's again, is a vast country with multiple ethnicities. Tell us a little bit about that so you could, you could just flesh that thought out a little more.
1: M- meaning ethnic minorities?
0: Yes, the ethnic minorities. Yeah.
1: Okay, so um, basically, much like this so-called shadow mobilization that, that Russia conducted in the months prior to the real thing. The you know the the poorer regions of Russia, the places with you know heavily uh, ethnic minority population, um, have really taken the brunt. So places like uh, Buryatia, you know in the east, um, uh, uh, Dagestan in the in the Caucasus, uh, you know really take the brunt. We've seen some unrest there. um, uh, You know basically because a these these places are poor, so you know folks might want to sign up. There might be a higher uh, percentage of of, you know, pri- uh, folks with prior military experience, and maybe they have a higher pool of reserves. And then I think also to some extent, like Moscow says, hey, you know, these are the places without political power, without a political voice, you know, if there's one place we're going to hit hard and sort of sow resentment, and this is going to be it. So um, we've seen that, you know, we've also seen just in general, um, you know, the some of these uh, uh, military recruitment offices, basically just taking, you know, way too many people way beyond the the scope of what uh, Putin and Shoigu said in terms of, you know, reservists with prior military experience, um, you know, in some, case, in some cases, people with disabilities um, getting getting drafted, you know, people without any military experience, um, some folks who are, you know, in like in the IT or defense uh, uh, industry who, you know, should be exempted or instead, you know, being sent to the front line, just a waste of very valuable experience and skills. Um, and so, you know, these these military offices and their officials have really taken a lot of flack from Russian talking heads and, you know, military, uh, correspondents and what have you. Okay. So looking, looking
0: forward, um, the, Russia's mobilized its forces, as we discussed, it's going to take time for them to make an impact if at all on the battlefield. Uh, probably a lot of this right now is an attempt to stop the bleeding, get some runits reformed to get them on the battlefield. But certainly the Ukrainians have the initiative right now. What do you think that, uh, you know, when I, looking forward three months from now, six months or more now, what will this, what impact do you think this mobilization will have on the Russian military's attempt to hold, just hold the gains that it has and possibly retake areas? We'll get into uh, a little bit into the annexation of, of, of Ukrainian territories next um, of whole, and because if, if they're going to want to take those territories, they're going to have to, they're going to have to go in and, and uh, they, have. you know, they've, they've, the Russians have, portions of Donetsk and, and it looks like they can lose portions of, of Kursan. So they're, if they want to really annex those areas in totality, they're going to have to go on the offensive. Do you think that this mobilizations, I would say in the short term, think of it three, six, nine months. Do you think that it'll have an, a positive impact for the Russians, allow them to hold the line or won't make a difference?
1: Yeah, I'd say the the biggest uh, biggest impact will probably be in just trying to fend off further Ukrainian gains and present, and prevent that you know collapse, large scale collapse of the of the Russian uh, defensive lines across uh, vast swaths of the front, you know, which I touched on earlier. Um, but you know, like I said, that will take will take time to arrive in numbers. You know, if you're talking about forming new units, you know, at least you know, a month or two. Um, but in, in general, you know, because the pipeline is kind of narrow. Um, it, it takes time to, to put people on the battlefield, especially if you're going to train and equip them meaningfully. So, you know, Ukraine still has a great opportunity uh, to retake ter- territory, and we're seeing that right now. We're basically Russia just doesn't have the, the manpower available to cover, you know, uh, everywhere it needs to defend, and so you, you know you're seeing um, certain areas of the front just sort of collapse. So. Why
0: we had the Russia announce the annexation of, of four territories within Ukraine? This was done. This annexation obviously happened within the last week. Why did Why did Putin announce this? Why is Russia an, annexing this territory now? Why seven months after the war began did he make the decision to do this? Tell us a little bit about the areas that are being annexed and and the the reasons why Russia is doing this.
1: Sure. So I think it's been clear for a while. That you know, Russia wasn't going to give this territory back. Um, you know, there was some talk of some sort of territorial arrangement earlier in the war as, as part of a potential peace deal. You know, if that was negotiated in good faith, it's over now. You know, uh, Putin by annexing these territories has you know, ended any possibility of, of you know, a peace a peace settlement, um, at least in the foreseeable future. And, and Zelensky has said as much, saying he, he won't negotiate with Russia. So um, it's been bottom line. It's been clear for a while. This is what Putin is going to do. Why he did it now, I think, uh, really comes down to a couple things. Um, one, if you remember, basically the the deadline for when they were going to hold these so-called referendums and then annex the territories kept getting pushed back, basically because of the security situation. It just didn't allow um, uh, for for the votes, the so-called votes. At least so we thought. You know, that's uh, that was assuming that you know, there's going to be some sort of, you know, semblance of legitimacy and order and you know, things were going to get done right. I think that's what the Kremlin initially wanted. Instead, I think what they quickly decided was, hey, let's just get some sort of vote now on paper and then let's just go ahead and you know, annex these territories. I think after the Kharkiv uh, Oblast counteroffensive, um, the Kremlin really realized, A, that our, mi- our military occupation officials on the ground, right, so the Russian-installed officials that are either Ukrainian and uh, switch to the Russian side or that were parachuted in from Russia uh, were like getting really worried. Uh, uh, it was true in the South, but even um, in, in, in the Donbass where, you know, they've been previously relatively safe. They were worried that they might meet the same fate as their comrades uh, in Kharkiv uh, Oblast. So I think, A, to, to reassure them that Russia is not going anywhere. You know, they moved up to annexation and then B, I, you know, there probably was some sort of uh, hope that, uh, by formally incorporating these territories into Russia you know you know uh, Putin could uh, deter further Ukrainian gains maybe scare the west off uh, from you know keep uh, continuing to supply ukraine and obviously that has not worked ukraine continues to to retake ground
0: yeah now th- I, I think there's another aspect to this as well putin can now now that it that it's according to the russians obviously it's not recognized internationally um but according to the russians this is now russian territory and he could take more uh this is russian soil he could make the argument we need to do a call up we need to uh, call up additional troops and harsher measures within the country as well as you know we've had some sat rattling of the nuclear saber from russian officials the potential use of nuclear weapons to defend its territory what are your thoughts on that john
1: on the nuclear yeah so i think I don't think we're there yet. I think that it, nuclear use remains unlikely. You know, oh, I, mean, I agree
0: with that. I mean, I'm yeah. just talking in the sense of that's rhetoric that could be used as well. Oh yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. I, I, I think that's clearly, you know, what they're trying to do. Some, some Russian officials have been you know, more direct than others, but yeah, they're, they're definitely rattling the saber.
0: Yeah. And, and I want to be perfectly clear why I don't think it's likely. Um, this is certainly an, a degree of escalation in this war that we all have to be worried about. Um, You know, Ukraine uh, or Zelensky is trying to accelerate uh, Ukraine's entry into NATO. I think um, I don't I think that's dead on arrival. Uh, The European countries are not going to take a country into into NATO while it's at war. And, you know, look, Article five is a defensive uh, agreement between the nato countries nato is designed to prevent a war not to get in a war and and letting ukraine join however the the, the drawing the us and drawing the west further into this war Talk of nuclear. These are the things that concern me. I realize this is probably a little bit beyond the scope of the conversation, but while I'm, I just want to be clear to the listeners, while I'm saying, I don't think there's going to be use of nuclear weapons. It's something we need to be very, very careful about as the U S plans its course forward. How much further do we get involved? We have to consider, you know, look, Russia's wrong for its invasion. This is an illegal invasion. However, we, we do not want to risk getting into a nuclear exchange because of we are not considering the fact that there may be some red lines that, that could be crossed here.
1: Yeah. You know, caution caution in the nuclear realm is always a good thing. Um, I think fortunately I, I don't see any prospect for, for a nuclear exchange between the United States and Russia. I think strategic deterrence will hold if, if the Russians were to, to do this. I think, It'd probably be in response to some sort of massive collapse of the front, you know, probably in, in the Donbass, maybe the Ukrainians are on the verge of taking Crimea or something. And then maybe there's some sort of uh, very credible threat. The, the, the uh, tactical non-strategic nuclear weapons are taking out of their long-term storage, maybe mated to the, to the delivery platforms, um, perhaps some sort of test or de- demonstrative use in the Arctic or Black Sea. And then from there, you know, m- maybe unthinkable, like a, a very low yield um, use against maybe critical infrastructure or something. P- perhaps a battlefield use against you know, a, a Ukrainian uh, column or something like that. But I think uh, I think it'd be more likely that they would use it for coerc- coercive purposes, um, you know, attacking critical infrastructure or something like that. Yeah, but again, I, I couldn't, very unlikely.
0: I, I couldn't agree more. I, I think that's the very likely scenario. I just always. You know, strange things happen in wars and we always want to be, be prepared for the unforeseeable. Um, let's, let's move over to the battlefield developments now. Um, a lot happening in Kharkov and, um, a little bit happening in the Donbas, and then in Kherson. Let's uh, start with Kharkov. Uh, the Russians really took it on the chin over the last, uh, what, three weeks, uh, now. Talk to us about, uh, how did this happen? Um, what did the Ukrainians do, and what? How did the Russians respond?
1: Sure. So if we just rewind the clock, um, you know, about a month or so ago, to when the the Kharkiv kind of offensive began, right? So uh, Ukrainian forces took uh, vast swaths of, of territory in Kharkiv. Oblast, basically pushed the Russians uh, past the Oskil River. Uh, Russia tried to set up, you know, a new defensive line there. Um, however, I think a lot of the forces uh, that it, Withdrew from from Kharkiv Oblast to the western side of the, of the Usko River. Were you know, badly degraded. They had lost a lot of equipment during the counteroffensive, and it had uh, you know, previously been been pretty thin. When Russia uh, redeployed a lot of forces from that area uh, down to the south, so um, you know, I think Russia, you know, they clearly struggled to hold that new defensive line for very long. Um, Ukraine was able to to um, cross the river in at least you know, at least two, probably probably more places. Um, and then you know, eventually uh, push up to encircle uh, Liman. The Russians you know, basically withdrew from that area to avoid uh, the encirclement and destruction of, of their grouping there.
0: John, what you're describing here is the, uh, the failure of the Russians to do its call-up, to have enough forces. They tried to rob Peter in Kharkiv, to pay Paul in Kherson. And they're paying the price for that. And I think that's exactly what we're seeing. So now the Russians have an opportunity. Uh, I'm sorry, the Ukrainians have an opportunity. The Russians are really struggling to hold what it, what it has right now. Um, I, I, my opinion here, and we, we talked about this uh, earlier in the week. Um, I think this pretty much ends the, the Russians ability to um, make further gains in Luhansk and actually threatens uh, Russian recent gains in in Luhansk um, as well. What are, your, what are your thoughts on that? What do you see going forward here?
1: Yeah, the Ukrainians are can- continuing to push. Uh, right now, Russia is trying to set up yet another defensive line um, in the area of, of Krimina and Svatovia. Um, you know, we'll see how that goes. I think, you know, in general, the Ukrainians definitely have the initiative. Um, so, you know, we'll have to see. But I, I would definitely foresee... Um, Ukrainian uh, Ukrainian forces continue to push into Luhansk Oblast, uh, and you know we'll see how far they go. Um, if Russia is not able to to get a solid defensive line, which will be difficult without the natural barrier of the of the river, um, then you know the Ukraine, the Russia, the Russians could uh, continue to collapse.
0: So in the Donbass region, the Russians are attempting to take the the town of Bakhmut. Um, talk to us a little bit about that. That's, this seems to be the only area where the Russians, uh, did I, um, uh, dislike calling it the saying they have the initiative, but where they're attempting, they're continuing to push offensive operations. Um, what's, has there been any success on that front? Has it stalemated?
1: Right. So in, in this area, just for listeners who aren't aware, this is a decent sized city, um, uh, in, in the, in the Donetsk Oblast, basically, if the uh, Russians had taken it, you know, uh, previously and still had the the push coming down from the south from uh, Izum, then you know maybe they could threaten the Slovyansk and Krematorsk the, the two remaining big cities in Donetsk Oblast. I think that that's Putin's political goal at this point. However, you know, because uh, the the Russians have lost their position in Kharkiv Oblast and in the Loman area, I don't see this likely. But basically, at this point, the the forces near Bakhmut are. Primarily Wagner PMC forces um, continue to push. Uh, they've made some you know, marginal tactical gains, nothing really of operational significance. And in fact, you know this this whole push could be rendered uh, moot if the Ukrainians continue to push too far into Luhansk Oblast.
0: Yeah, I I think that's absolutely correct. I think that you know I am curious that the Russians are continuing to commit resources. To Bakhmut, um, while it's on its back foot in, in Kharkiv, uh, let's move on to Kherson. Tell us about what's happening there. Um, obviously, this offensive began in late August. Uh, talk to us about what's the what's the state. We've had some recent developments where it looks like the Ukrainians have punched through. Tell us a little bit about
1: that. Sure. So, just to catch the readers up, so we we had months of long-range Ukrainian strikes against uh, Russian C2, against uh, uh, key bridges, there are basically a a couple of key bridges across the Dnieper that supply uh, Russian forces, and then one more across the Inulets River. Uh, The the Ukrainians have been taking out those, taking out the the, um, uh, ad hoc uh, pontoon crossings that the Russians set up, hitting Russian ammo, ammo depots routinely. Uh, basically trying to make life very difficult for the Russians on the western side of the Dnieper River. Um, so late August, uh, the Ukrainians launched their, their kind of offensive in that oblast. There's basically three axes, uh, one sort of coming from the Mikolaev area, um, one in the Andrivka area, and then one uh, to the northeast. Um, for the first week or so, I think Ukraine you know, made some decent gains, minor but, but, but significant And then for a while, maybe we took a few, town here, town there, uh, nothing really major. However, over this past weekend, there was um, a a push in the Northeast access um, by forces from at least a few different brigades, um, probably at least several battalions, um, some armor infantry supported by artillery, um, and they managed to push very far, um, uh, basically collapsing uh, most of the, the Russian front there, And then, you know, it's still developing as I speak. But so far, the Russians have had to retreat uh, from Duchani, a key town uh, northeast uh, of Bereslav. And eventually...
0: Just a real quick, John, just for the listeners. um, We're recording this on October 4th. It's a very dynamic situation. Uh, If things change between now and then, you'll understand why. Go ahead, John.
1: Sure. So, you know, with that in mind, maybe I should just leave the the tactical developments for, for the uh, listeners to read on their own. Basically, what happened here is that, like I said earlier, uh, the Russians just don't have the, enough forces to be able to cover you know, all areas. So they had held out for a while. I think eventually Ukraine found a weak spot and was able to exploit it.
0: Yeah. They, they you know, uh, one thing as I watch this, I think what is very clear it's not being US support uh, and NATO support was very. Um, widely advertised at the beginning and over the summer particularly with weapons systems but advising i'm definitely i think what we're definitely seeing here is um, advising very likely at the brigade and possibly even the battalion level certainly at the at the division or core level for the ukrainian military on how to target russian forces in the rear how to target command and control and Target supply nodes, uh, other key infrastructure the Russians need, and then how to exploit those, um, uh, that targeting and, and push, punch through the Russian forces. I, uh, it, it, it's always really bothered me at the beginning of this, just how chatty U.S. military officials and, and, and State Department and government officials were about this, um, you know, about the support. Like, I, I don't mean to go back to Afghanistan here, but I mean, we recall the big dust up in Afghanistan when it was supposedly the Russians were paying the Taliban to kill American troops. That actually proved to not be true. And yet then we had American officials touting how we were advising the Ukrainians to kill Russian generals, right? Like those are the kind of things you just keep quiet about. You don't advertise. And I think what we're seeing here with these offensives um, is – yeah, you know, you, you, certainly the Ukrainians aren't just, you know, doing this on their own. I, I, I see an American, a, a Western hand in directing these operations, um, it, it really from an advisor, advisory standpoint. But uh, what do you, what do you think, John?
1: Well, definitely, uh, U.S. and Western intelligence has been a huge benefit uh, for the Ukrainians. Uh, yeah, you know, the, the Biden administration wouldn't call it targeting info. You can get into the technical definitions or whatever, but yeah, they're giving them the, the coordinates of, you know, here's a C2 hub, here's an ammo depot, whatever, to the extent we can get it. Um, and then you know, the Ukrainians make very good use of that, of that information. And, well, I, I
0: think it's more than that. I think, I think they're not only begin, being given the intelligence, but they're being told how to use it. I, 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 it has to be. Uh, the Ukrainians are good, but uh, this is what we're witnessing here, I think, is, is the next level.
1: Well, and, and then you know, to, to the uh, advice from the advice perspective, yeah, well, I mean, it has been publicly reported that um, the, the United States as well as the UK provided a whole lot of advice on basically operational level planning. So, yeah, the Ukrainians have had a ton of help. It's not to take anything away from them, but
0: but no, yeah, no, absolutely not. That's they're smart. They're using the advice yep. to to their advantage. That's. Uh, that's all, all the more credit to them. The worst thing they could do is not take the advice. Yep. I can point to war after war we've been involved in in 20 years where local militaries just refuse to accept good advice and good training. So, yeah.
1: Yeah, I'd say in general, you know, obviously Western support is, is a big deal, big advantage. But if you look at the, the correlation of forces between uh, the Ukrainians and Russians, not only are the Ukrainians, using this this western military aid to you know, equip new forces and exploit their manpower advantage they're also increasingly reaching that te- technological parity or even in some areas you know, surpassing the russians for example you know long-range uh, precision fires uh certainly uh, with all the satellite intelligence and whatnot they're getting um that you know that's a big advantage
0: yeah you know my only concern with all that and uh, we talked about this before john is like there's just been a report the US is going to provide what was it 18 more um HIMAR rocket systems uh guided rocket systems right but that's not until 2025 where the ukrainians so these are more long term purchases what that tells me is it's very likely the US is reaching a limitation in what it can provide the ukrainians from their stocks so will the ukrainians be able to get the munitions and additional weapon systems it needs to push these defenses forward these are the things we have to watch it's it's a concern of mine it hasn't been an issue now what does that look like six months from now one year from now you know again we have to wait and see
1: yeah i 100 agree
0: so um what would the smart thing we'll go turn back to curse on what would be the smart things for the Russians to do here now that it's, it's taking? Now, my understanding, too, is that they had three defensive lines set up in this region. So clearly, the Russians were prepared to a degree for some type of offensive was looking ahead to defend this territory. Um, what would be the right thing for the Russians to do if it wants to keep control of a significant portion of the territory? Um, and is that politically viable for the Russians to do?
1: Yeah, you you know, you're right. The the Russians have been digging in, uh, building four or five positions in this this region for months. Um, You know, this is where I think they they concentrated the bulk of their most combat effect, especially from from the airborne. Um, So it it is somewhat surprising that you'd see this sort of large scale um, collapse. I think in general, though, uh, I think the smart military thing to do would have been to to withdraw across the river probably a while ago. Um, in fact, it's been publicly reported that the um, Russian general staff was asking Putin to do just that. Uh, he, for obvious reasons, declined. You know, his political goals don't necessarily uh, match up with military reality, um, and so you know the Russians are sort of trying to hang on by their fingernails.
0: Yeah, I hate to uh, make uh, you know to make uh, World War II comparisons and Putin Hitler things here, but you know the German military. Uh, neglected good advice. I'm sorry, the, uh, Adolf Hitler neglected very good advice on, um, from his military leaders on when it should pull out of Stalingrad and other places. And I think we're seeing the impact of this on multiple fronts from, from, uh, Putin's, uh, stubbornness. I understand there's political realities and political, um, uh, difficulties in, in conducting withdrawals in certain areas. But you could either withdraw your forces willingly, or you could risk losing them um, in their entirety. So, the um, what are we looking forward? Um, pro, let's say the next three six months here. Um, do the Ukrainians consolidate their gains that they they have right now? Do they keep pushing forward? What do What do you think is going to happen here?
1: Sure, and just to. Uh... A quick follow up on that last point. You know, I think this has been an issue throughout the war, including at the very beginning. Just again, based on public reporting, you know, I think that the Russian general staff was not too keen on the war plan um, drawn up at the beginning. You know, didn't think there's enough forces. It, you know, it didn't really make much military sense, as was obvious uh, in in hindsight. Um, so, you know, Putin's own predilections and and his willingness or unwillingness to listen to good military advice has has been you know, key throughout. Um, in terms of looking forward, I, I would say. Oh, John, um,
0: before you do that, I you know yeah. one thing like looking back on that, I wanted to expand on that point a little. The Russian military plan, as it was right to strike at Kiev, seize areas in the south and the east, was solid if it was properly resourced. We might be having a very very difficult different conversation than right now today than you know. If if Putin had done that, and his failure to do that has, has really put him in a bind, um,
1: yeah, I, I would I would say a couple of things. Um, one, yeah, t- to your point, I think absolutely, you know, sending troops in with, without warning that they're about to go into a war, you know, many of them found out they were in a war, you know, once they crossed the border, that's no way to conduct yeah, operational
0: a, security in this extreme there. That's, a,
1: yeah. Um, you know, setting forces in with only a few days worth of provisions, you know, generally expecting Ukraine to collapse quickly. Uh, you know, all of these things contributed you know, to, to Russia's failure during the first phase. I think uh, also it, it probably, you know, that is the, that assumption that Ukraine would quickly collapse, you know, also informed, you know, what the, the Russians tried to do. So, you know, going straight at Kyiv, uh, you know, sending units flying down roads without much support, if any, you know, uh, th- that all stemmed from that, that poor assumption. I think if, if you know, the Russians had, or at least Putin had respected um, the Ukrainian military and Ukrainian will to resist, it, we probably would have seen some sort of combined arms operation designed to encircle and destroy, you know, the, the bulk of the, Rus- the Ukrainian military in the Donbass, where it actually, you know, was at the very, very beginning of the war.
0: Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more all right let's let's move forward to to what do we think is going to happen what are what are the Ukrainian goals for the the short term and then we'll we'll conclude there
1: sure so I, I think you know in, in addition to, to pushing herson and Luhansk blast I think you know Ukraine has, has clearly shown it can conduct two uh, operational scale counteroffensives simultaneously and that, that's a big advantage it it, you know basically puts Russia on the horns of a dilemma you reinforce the south you reinforce the east you know Russia's on exterior lines it can't move forces quickly as quickly as Ukraine can on its interior lines um so Russia faces quite a dilemma the the manpower um, shortage you know exacerbates it um so Ukraine has, has lots of good options we could you know, I think we'll continue to see them pushing Luhansk and Hersong. Um, beyond that we you know we could see, uh, you know, then prioritize Donetsk or Zaporizhia Oblast. There's been reports of buildups there. You know, it's unclear what, what the intentions are, what the scale is, you know, whether it's, you know, some sort of fixing action or uh, actually preparations for an eventual counteroffensive there. You know, we ultimately have to see.
0: Yeah. Do you think the Ukrainians have uh, the um, resources and the ability to open up a, a third uh, a counteroffensive in, in Zaporizhia or in Donetsk? I mean, it seems like the Donetsk uh, area, as Kharkiv continues to shrink, that seems to be becoming a, you know, the, a single front there. So maybe that's more realistic. Uh, what are your thoughts?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, it's really hard to say. I mean, we know that Ukraine throughout the you know, previous months of the war was basically using, using that time, you know, trading space for time, trying to build uh, out you know, new brigades in the West. Um, you know, it seems to have done that successfully. It you know, was able to, to rotate forces off the line, um, you know, when they get too bad or tired. Uh, you know, it, it's hard for me to say sitting you know, here in Washington exactly how many you know, brigades they have or what have you. Um, but yeah, I, I think we could see at least a tactical level um, a third counteroffensive. I'm really not sure how far it could go. Um, but you know, we'll just have to wait and see.
0: Yeah, no, I, absolutely. Again, I hate putting you on the spot with questions no, like no, that. No, no, they're, they're it's, great questions. It, it's difficult to read the crystal ball, um, I, as we all know, but it's, it's certainly worth exploring. John, thank you so much for your, um, your expert analysis on the war in Ukraine. Of course, you and I are hoping for Ukrainian victory. We uh, certainly love to see the Russians get it handed to them for their illegal invasion of, of Ukraine. Uh, Thanks again for joining me. I look forward to having you should be back on in two weeks. So I look forward to seeing you then, John.
1: All right. Thank you, Bill.
0: Yeah, John, you have a great day. And everyone, thanks for joining us for today's episode of Generation Jihad with uh, John Hardy. Just a reminder, you could find us on YouTube, Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Make sure you subscribe and leave us a review, preferably a positive one. Thanks again, and we'll see you again soon.